that the animals are going extinct. I feel like some people don't know what's happening. We should have something like an Irish Green New Deal that focuses on, as quickly as possible, re-engineering our energy system. Welcome to Beyond the Obvious, a podcast series co-hosted by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Caroline White, to afford to arrive. I'm Sean Conlon, Sean O'Conlon Oscoilga. In the course of this series, we'll be introducing you to speakers with topics of fundamental importance to us. We hope you'll both enjoy and be stimulated by them. In this episode... Well, I want to do the strike to try to um, get the government's attention, to try to um, make them realise that they need to act soon or it'll be too late. Well, I was out in March in November. I was at the Extinction Rebellion one in November. We are making posters at, and we're going to do maybe marching. We're kind of just learning about climate change as well. These are the voices of two 11-year-olds, Eve O'Connor and Beth Malone. They're part of a growing worldwide movement of young people who are concerned about their future and have become involved with the climate strikes movement. And in Ireland at the moment, there's also a climate court case, which is organised by Friends of the Irish Environment, with the intention of obliging the government to make an ambitious emissions reduction plan. So what types of actions does Ireland need to include in its plan in order to meet its climate obligations? One person who's put a great deal of time and energy into research on climate change and energy system decarbonisation is Professor Barry McMullen of Dublin City University. I spoke with him the other day. So Barry, we understand that in terms of limiting the effects of climate change, we have to find a way to stop emitting greenhouse gases. And we also know the energy system's the biggest single contributor. In Ireland, what would you see as being the possibilities for getting rid of greenhouse gases altogether? Okay, well, Caroline, there's good news and bad news, as they say. The good news is we actually do have some options, which, you know, there's no law of the universe that says we have to have these things available to us. But there are a number of low emissions sources of energy that we could tap into both globally and locally. Uh, And it's important to take the local point of view, as with fossil fuels, different countries have different sort of resources at their disposal. And you need to kind of look at the options in the context of a particular place, a particular set of possibilities. For Ireland, looking at uh, low carbon or ideally zero carbon energy sources, I'll just run through there's essentially four possibilities that that are reasonably realistic. The first one, just to get it out of the way, is nuclear power. Nuclear power works. It's relatively low carbon. There's carbon involved in building nuclear power plants uh, initially, but in operation, uh, there's essentially no uh, carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emissions. We don't have any nuclear power plants in Ireland. In fact, we have laws prohibiting the building of nuclear power plants at the moment. In general, we have the kind of societal perspective has been that nuclear is not a route we wanted to go through. We looked at it about 30 years ago and decided against it. Now, obviously, the climate challenge is much greater now than it was then. So maybe that one could be looked at again. But the lead time to really do it, you know, if we decided tomorrow that we wanted to revisit that, it would probably still be 20 years. And so it's, you know, maybe in the second half of the century, Nuclear might have a role to play in Ireland, but in the next 20 to 30 years, it's going to be very small, if any. Mm -hmm. We'll import a little bit over interconnectors. That's about it. So that's nuclear. Number two is that we keep on using fossil fuels, but we find a way to avoid the emissions. 
So we get the energy from, and by fossil fuels, we're talking about coal, oil, and gas. So we find ways to get the energy that we want, um, but prevent the bad stuff, the carbon dioxide emissions going into the atmosphere. And the idea here is generally called carbon capture and storage, or CCS, uh, as it's technically called. And, and there are contexts in which we can do that, particularly, I mean, it's not trivial. You know, there's quite a lot of large-scale engineering involved in separating carbon dioxide after you've sort of extracted the energy from a fossil fuel. And then you have to have somewhere safe to store this carbon dioxide. It's not all that easy to store, and you need to be able to store it for very long periods of time, like hundreds to thousands or even tens of thousands of years. But it can be done. There are a couple of example places in the world where it has been done on electricity generating plants particularly, which are large scale plants where you can do this. And the, for, for storing the CO2, the general idea is to pump it into porous rocks underground where it can be capped off. And, and there's good sort of geological reasons for thinking that that can be secure for the long periods of time we need. It, it takes some extra energy to actually do the carbon capture and storage, so you don't get as much energy out as you would get from the raw fossil fuels if you let it go to atmosphere. And you do have to do it at scale. So certain applications of fossil fuels, like, for example, putting petrol in your car, uh, it's not really feasible to capture the CO2 on a very small scale. Mm, with your gas okay. or oil boiler in a house for heating, it's not really feasible to do it. But yeah, there, there, there's potential for fossil fuel with carbon capture and storage, and indeed the Irish government has signalled uh, recently in its latest plan submitted to the EU that within the next 10 years or so, it, it is looking seriously at the possible deployment of at least one uh, fossil fuel with carbon capture and storage type plant. So yeah, technology is fairly immature. Um, and you can't capture all the CO2 and you're still dependent on importing those fossil fuels. So you're exposed to supply disruptions on an international level. So there's upsides and downsides to it, but well worth trying. Next option on the table, uh, bioenergy. So, the, I mean, and we're familiar with, I guess, some kinds of bioenergy. You know, you can go trees, cut them down, chop them up, put them into a boiler. And because when plants are growing, they absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, that's where the carbon comes from that goes into the material of the, the biomass. When you burn them again and, and produce CO2, you're basically putting back into the atmosphere the same carbon that had previously been extracted. So it's sort of a balance rather than increasing the total amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And, and their scope, you know, you can do, we, we could cultivate more bioenergy crops here in Ireland. Forestry is one way of doing it. It's not necessarily ideal because it takes a long, long time before you're getting energy out. Or conversely, once you burn it, it takes a long time to pull that carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere to regrow those trees. So short rotation bioenergy crops are probably a better idea. It's also possible to import bioenergy crops from elsewhere in the world. And, and we currently do that for co-firing in one of our otherwise peat burning electricity generating stations. But again, you're reliant on imports and, and there are strong question marks over, as it were, the sustainability implications of some of this imported bioenergy. The problem here is there's only so much land that we can grow these things on. So you get competition with other land uses. 
potential pressure on food supply that uh, has argued that the EU biofuel requirements and, and motor fuels in the last 10 years have actually had an impact on food security or insecurity on a global basis. And also, although I said the carbon cycles, so there, there's no net increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, there are other things going on with agriculture. So to cultivate bioenergy crops, certainly the shorter rotation crops, you use nitrogen fertilizers and they're highly energy intensive in their own right, mm-hmm. uh, which currently involves emissions of carbon dioxide. And when you use them, it also tends to release nitrous oxide, which is a potent greenhouse gas in its own right. And the plants don't suck that back out of the atmosphere. Uh, so there is, it, it's not, certainly not perfect, but potentially a contribution to make those two together the fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage and bioenergy i think in the irish context could play my guess is a role at maybe the 10 to 20 percent level in terms of our current total energy requirements but even at that you know it, it's challenging and will take time to roll out and some of the technology is immature mm-hmm. the next option which will have a kind of a, a sub-option, is what we all associate, tend to associate with the, 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 the words renewable energy. In Ireland, that's wind power, particularly wind turbines and solar energy. Uh, it could be solar directly for heating, for hot water, or even for space heating, or it could be solar for electricity. Uh, with wind, we're generally talking about electricity again. As anybody who lives in Ireland knows, particularly if you live on the West Coast, we have a lot of wind. Uh, we're actually well suited for wind. And the offshore wind potential is, is even higher than the onshore wind potential. And based on the analysis that has been done, if you thought up the possible wind resources and, and some solar resources, the estimate is that just in raw total back of the envelope numbers, there's probably within the Irish National Territory the potential for maybe two to three times our current total annual energy usage from wind and solar. That is to say, you know, we've got an abundance of those resources relative to our current consumption. In theory, we have to actually harvest them. That's one issue. And, you know, building wind turbines, they they can, depending on how it's handled with local communities, it, it can actually you know, there are certainly examples in Ireland where it has been done very poorly with poor local involvement and consultation. So there's been a backlash against some wind power developments, and that's perfectly understandable. And and but we do we have successfully deployed an awful lot of wind electricity generation, and there's still scope for some more onshore and lots of scope for offshore. So that sounds great problem of course is that the wind doesn't always blow the sun doesn't always shine and although on a, on a year-long basis there is enough to cover all our energy needs it isn't necessarily there when we need it and also it's not necessarily in the form that we want it so currently have lots of infrastructure vehicles in particular and, and boilers for heating that rely on chemical fuels whereas wind gives us electricity so uh, there's a lot of work that would be involved both on the supply side and the way people use it to fix that. But again, there's good news. If if we could store that energy over periods of time of the order of four weeks to eight weeks, that's you know a really bad year, say for wind, we might get a stretch of four, five, six weeks when there's very low wind. Now offshore, 
it's actually less so, more constant when conditions are offshore. But, but we could have periods of several weeks with low wind conditions. So to ride that out, we would need the ability to store enough energy from when there's more wind than we need or more solar than we need uh, for those periods when there's less. Mm-hmm. And, and that's mm-hmm. technically difficult, technically challenging. But there, there's an awful lot of research and work and, and development going on globally on this, and it'll probably improve in the next 10 to 20 years. But in terms of things we can deploy right now today, people immediately think of batteries because there's a lot of hype around batteries. But it turns out that batteries, they, they just don't scale to that kind of size. The costs are you know, just completely infeasible. Uh, you can certainly use batteries to store significant amounts of energy for a few hours or even overnight, but weeks, no, it's not a not a realistic option. What we can do is use surplus energy to actually make or synthesize or manufacture chemical fuels like hydrogen or ammonia or something like that. And, and they can be stored com- relatively compactly and, and while it hasn't been done anywhere in the world as yet on this kind of scale, in principle at least, we have all the technological pieces to do that. It's not terribly efficient, or put it the other way, it's quite inefficient. The, the round trip from the original wind energy to getting electricity back, if, if that's the way you go, might only get back somewhere between a quarter and a half of the energy you originally had. But if that allows you to ride out these infrequent periods when we have very low wind for a long period, then that, you know, it's only a small part of your total energy system costs. Uh, so it's still, based on the numbers I've seen at least, perfectly feasible. So uh, I'll, I'll let you get in there, Caroline. That, that's, that's it in sense for mm-hmm. the supply side options. But mm-hmm. as I say, the good news is there are options. We probably need some mix of those options. But for me personally, in Ireland's specific circumstances, you know, taking what is available to us locally and the, what did I say, the energy security issue. At the moment, Ireland imports, I don't know the exact number to hand, but certainly more than two thirds of our energy uh, is imported. Um, and, and that import dependence is going to increase in the next few years because we currently have one large natural gas source, the coral gas field, but that's going to run down quite quickly over the next 10 years. So we're very, very exposed to international dislocation and energy supply. So for me, the wind and solar with storage, with chemical storage route as a strategic way of decarbonizing most of our energy, my personal view is that that's the best thing. And and, and we should have you know, the term's getting a little bit tired now or a little bit overused, but we should have something like an Irish Green New Deal that focuses on as quickly as possible re-engineering our energy system on that kind of basis. So, be happy? <laughs> yeah, um, that makes sense to me. Um, one question I have is, you've been talking in terms of supply side changes, you know, changing in the nature of the energy that we're using and the way in which we deal with the emissions from the energy and so on. What would you be your view on demand side, on the amount of energy that's being used, whether that can also be changed and whether that ought to be changed as part of the path towards getting rid of greenhouse gas altogether? Yeah, I mean, I think that's we, we do have to talk about both together, certainly. 
what I've described, you know, I've given you the good news, which is we have options on the supply side, but they're all they all come with caveats and difficulties and challenges. Sure. And they're yeah. slow. You know, yeah. the energy yeah. system is a big thing. We're completely replacing the energy system that we've built up over 50 plus years. And some elements like the Arden Crusher Power Station is over 90 years old and is still running. So, you know, we've built up our existing system over a long period of time. Uh, you can't turn on a dime. But unfortunately, the climate challenge is now so severe and we've left it so late. We need to drive emissions down really, really quickly. So although on a 20 to 30 to 40 year time scale, the kinds of things I've described can be done. Now, they won't be cheap and they'll be very disruptive, but they, they physically can be done. But trying to do it in 10 years, probably not possible. And even doing it on 20, 30, 40 years it's easier if you're not simultaneously increasing the amount of energy you're using. If you're simultaneously increasing the amount of energy you're using, then you're making everything so much harder. Whereas if you can constrain how much energy you use, then that immediately reduces emissions. And, and at least some of that doesn't require you to build out new infrastructure. Some reductions in emissions don't require that. So in, in general, demand side consumption reductions have the potential to be done much faster. And, and because carbon dioxide accumulates in, in the atmosphere, early reductions in our demand while we're working on decarbonizing the energy system represent a way of buying time for the transition, giving, giving ourselves more time to transition. So that's really, really important. Some uh, demand side reductions are possible without, as we technically say, reducing the energy services. So th this is the idea of energy efficiency. So you think of Ireland has a, a, a building stock where we have many, many buildings, residential buildings, business premises, schools, hospitals, so forth that have been built to very poor building standards with the result that they leak energy, they leak heat in particular, they're not very efficient. So we could certainly improve the efficiency of those which would allow us to reduce our energy consumption and yet have at least the same level of comfort, the same level of heating, or maybe even improve comfort in some cases at least, and address energy poverty at the same time it would, would also be possible. So that, that's energy efficiency, and we should certainly be doing a lot more. And I've mentioned the building energy efficiency, but there's other, other opportunities for energy efficiency. So we should certainly try to exploit all of those, but I think we should also at least have a conversation about going beyond energy efficiency to reducing our energy services, actually making do with less energy services. And again, bringing it down to sort of very colloquial level, as well as super insulating your house, you could wear slightly warmer clothes and set the thermostat that bit lower. You know, So these kinds of things, actually re reducing, as I say, our energy services, doing less travel as opposed to just traveling the same distance more efficiently, that would be consumption reduction. So I, I think we need both things. We, we need to work as hard as we can, as quickly as we can on the supply side, but we need to have a serious conversation about the scope on the demand side, on the consumption side. That's And the examples I've given have sort of been towards individual consumption, but a lot of energy consumption in the economy is by businesses. So I think we need to look at our, the overall activity of our societies and all the different ways we use energy in our societies and see whether any there's any scope for 
maintaining or ideally improving the welfare of our society at the same time as actually reducing consumption, material consumption. Almost all material consumption involves energy use in the background. So whatever we can do on that more quickly while protecting social welfare and and stability and solidarity, we need to do those things as well. That would be very valuable. And the thing to remember on the consumption side, it's very important, is that some people in society and some organisations in society are responsible for much, dramatically more emissions than others, dramatically more energy consumption, dramatically more emissions than others. So targeting the really highest emissions consumption is, I think, an essential element to doing a, a fair or a just transition both nationally and and also, of course, on a global level, like living here in a country like Ireland with very high levels of material consumption on on a global basis, we're extraordinarily comfortable both in historical terms and in current global terms, and, and we sometimes forget that. So I think the scope for societies, relatively rich societies, to cut back on consumption in order to buy time for the transition does need to be talked about. That was Professor Barry McMullen from Dublin City University, summarising various ways, some better than others, in which we can decarbonise the energy supply so as to be able to transition away from producing greenhouse gas emissions. But Barry also emphasised that we need to consider changes in energy consumption. This brings up important questions like, how much consumption do we really need in order to be able to flourish as individuals and communities? How do people achieve well-being in their lives? How can we measure well-being? Is it possible to live well in Ireland with considerably lower levels of consumption than at present? Our next podcast will explore these topics and more generally the idea of progress and what an economy is actually for. I asked the two 11-year-olds whose voices we heard at the beginning of the podcast, Eve and Beth, what kind of world they would like their grandchildren to live in. I wouldn't like there to be all the pollution there is at the moment. I wouldn't like there to be plastic in the seas and I'd like there still to be like tigers and orangutans and polar bears. Uh, I would like them to have uh, a world full of uh, happiness and um, nature and lots of uh, love and joy. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Obvious. Our special thanks to Eve O'Connor, Beth Malone, and Professor Barry McMullen. Boyachas Freshen, Dolisha Kelly, for her theme music on the harp. Please tune in to our next podcast, which will be broadcast on April the 15th.